Welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here, and want to add my welcome to Chris's. Thanks for being here this morning. We really count a privilege that you would come and worship God together with us. We're continuing in a series in the book of Revelation. Um, in case this is your first Sunday, don't be freaked out, don't worry. Um, I would encourage you, if this is your first Sunday, go and listen to the previous two weeks to get some background for the book of Revelation. Um, the book of Revelation is not meant to be intimidating or confusing. It's, it's not meant to scare us. It's actually meant to give us assurance, peace. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant for us to see our triumphant King Jesus, who, who has conquered, he is reigning, and he will return. And that's really the main theme that we're looking at throughout the book of Revelation. But um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation 1. We'll be finishing out chapter 1 this morning. And this is a word from God for us for today. Let's listen. This is God's holy, inspired word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's holy word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are needy, we are desperate, we need to hear from you. God, thank you that you desire to speak to us today, that you desire to make yourself known, that you desire that we would behold you, that we would see you in all your glory, in all your splendor, and that Seeing you would speak directly to our circumstances and situation, that, that we would have confidence in you as we see you for who you are. God, I pray, though, that you would help our feeble minds comprehend you. You would help us imagine your glory and your beauty. 
God, your glory and your beauty are, are too much to describe. Their words are not sufficient. Yet, Lord, I pray that we would see you in your splendor. God, I pray that as we see you, Jesus, our King, our Savior, the one who loves us, I pray that we would receive these words as a personal letter to us. And God, we pray practically for everybody here. Lord, I pray that you would protect us and keep us from getting sick. Lord, so much of our church is out today, Lord, for, from being sick. So Father, we pray for them. We pray for all those who have the flu and have other issues. Lord, I pray that you would heal them, that you would minister to them, that you would be with them. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with your church. We can pray confidently because you are with us, because you hold us. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, as most women in the church know, Valentine's Day is coming up. Um, I, I say as most women know because some guys are like, whoa, really? Forgot about that one. Don't raise your hand if you're one of those guys. Um, it, it's, it's somewhat of a made-up holiday, but it's a, it's a time of year when you, when you celebrate the people that you love. Now, for some people, it's difficult because you don't have a, a significant other, a spouse, or a loved one like that in your life, but, but most everyone has someone that you love in some way, and, and Valentine's can be a significant time to write letters to them. And Imagine that you received a letter, a Valentine's letter from your spouse or your loved one. And imagine that you got that letter and you said, oh, thanks, honey, I really appreciate that. And then you get out like the dictionary and you get out the thesaurus and you get out all these other tools and you, and you get out all these archaeological studies and you start looking at it like a decoder map. And you say, well, you know, I'm going to figure out what you really meant by this letter. When you use these symbols when you say, you know, my love for you is like a river, it's overflowing. What does that really mean? And so you, you look at that letter and you start taking it apart and trying to figure it out. And you try to decode it like, it like it's an enigma machine, like it's meant to decode how you relate to the person. That would be very strange, wouldn't it? I hope it would be strange. I hope you don't do that. Um, I hope you don't take a letter from a loved one as something to be decoded, something to try to figure out like they're trying to communicate a mystery. No, they're actually communicating something to you because they want you to understand something. They want you to experience and understand their affection, their love for you, and other things. Now, if it wasn't just a letter around Valentine's Day, but it was a letter written to you to encourage you to maybe address some things in your life that needed to be addressed, it would still be strange if you read it like um, a puzzle map. As, as, a, as a treasure map, something to, to, to figure out. And yet, that's often how we approach the book of Revelation. And yet, let's remember, repeatedly, throughout the opening in chapter 1, he's told us that it's a letter, and it's written to real people, to real churches. We're not to, meant to look at it as some decoder map, like we're, we're trying to figure it out, like it's an enigma. But this is a loving letter from our Savior, from the King, who is triumphant, who's ruling and reigning, and who will come back. This is a letter written to us, and, and here in verses 9 through 20, what we see is he is specifically addressing the letter. He's specifically addressing the letter, and he addresses this letter to specific people. He addresses this to the seven churches, and, and as we looked at last week, those seven churches are really representative of his church in general. And so as we come to this letter, let's, at the very beginning, let's Let's really not miss this point that this is a personal letter. This is a personal letter. It's a personal message to the church from Almighty Jesus. 
So when you're hearing this morning and you're reading through that, don't, don't think abstractly like this is some letter written to someone else. This is Jesus' letter written to his church for all time. It was written to a specific church in a specific time, but it's a letter that's applicable for all time, and he wrote it specifically with you in mind as well. It's a personal message to the church from Almighty King Jesus. And so as you're holding this letter in your hands... Think of it that way. Look down your Bibles for a second and think this is a personal message to the church from Almighty Jesus. That, that helps frame up the letter. That helps frame up how we're to receive this. John wasn't writing as some abstract observer who's aloof and apart from the challenges of daily Christian life either. This letter's written personally and it's written from a person mediated through John. And John gets it. And he communicates that. John, John's a real person. It's a personal message coming through John, too. He's not writing about the Christian life from some hypothetical standpoint, either. He gets it. He understands as a fellow follower, disciple of Jesus Christ. And I believe the argument the Apostle John here, he's, is John's writing to the church. But he doesn't write from an apostolic authority. He, he writes as a brother. It's a personal message, mediated from a personal king to, through a, a real person, through John, a brother, a sharer is what he calls himself, a partaker, a fellow partaker, and that's the same kind of word that we get that word fellowship from, but he's a fellow sharer in this, in this life that we have, and he goes on to explain what he shares in. But it's interesting, he doesn't, he doesn't call himself an apostle. Um, you have to listen for last week's message. Why I think there's good warrant that it's the Apostle John, especially because he was ministering to the churches in Ephesus and that whole region prior to this. That's, that's well documented historically. He was in that region. And, and we have good tradition that says that he was banished to the island of Patmos. So with all likelihood, this really is the Apostle John. But he writes as a brother. He writes as a brother, a sharer. Now that's interesting because he could be proud, right? He's probably probably close to his 80s at least by now. He's, he's up there. You know, he's not, he's not ready to die, but he's getting up there, right? He's seeing the end of his life, and, and he's up there, but he doesn't write with pride about who he is and his position, because after all, how could he? He's seen the risen Lord. He's seen Jesus. What does he have to be proud about himself? You know, seeing Jesus, it actually has that effect, it has that humbling effect when we see Jesus for who he is, when we see the fact that Jesus is the one who loves us, despite the fact that he knows everything about us. He loves us, and he died for us. He set us free from our sins. We've seen all these things already in the, in the beginning of the chapter here. So how can any disciple who's seen the greatness of Jesus brag about his position? That seems irrelevant, right? So John's writing here as a brother. He's a brother in Jesus, along with his fellow saints. He's identifying with them. So he writes, your partner, your fellow sharer in Jesus. And, and, and look at the three things he says he's a, a fellow sharer in. It's a very personal message. He's sharing in some real things. He says he's a, a, a fellow sharer, a partaker in tribulation. Now, we don't like that word because for us, tribulation conjures up all kinds of scary imagery, Right? But John says he's actively sharing. He is partaking together currently in their tribulation that they are experiencing, that the church experiences generally as well. 
So he, he's not writing hypothetically that he, he can't identify, he can't relate. Now, if you've ever struggled and experienced the difficulty and you had somebody come up to you and you said, you know, I know how you feel. You ever had that happen? And that person really doesn't know how you feel? That's not helpful. Now, if they say, I can imagine how you must feel, that must be awful, that's better because they're not assuming that they've experienced the same kinds of things. And Paul, I mean, John, though, he's saying, I, I, I'm a fellow partaker. I do get it. And actually, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm on an island. Patmos here. I'm in exile. I, I've shared, I've been a fellow sharer in the tribulation. If you read the book of Acts, he shared very early on in his experience in tribulation. He got put in jail and he was mistreated and beaten. We don't know all the things that exactly happened to John, but he's a sharer in tribulation, and he's experiencing something that Jesus said would happen to all the church, actually. In, in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted, he says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That is what the church faces. And this is a very personal letter meant, meant to encourage us in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of the things that Jesus is talking about. And, and John was very familiar with it, and, and so were the other apostles, and, and they sought to prepare the church and to comfort the church in the midst of the tribulation then, and the ongoing tribulation that has happened, will happen. In Acts 14, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they, they left the region they were in because they got stoned and left for dead. They came back later. Why did they come back later? Because they wanted to comfort the saints in the midst of tribulation. They personally cared for them. It says, when they preached the gospel of the city, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, same word, by the way, that Jesus used, that John used, the same, same word here, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is for all the church. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So if you're experiencing tribulations, another, another way of saying there's affliction, suffering, and I don't know anyone today who doesn't suffer or experience some affliction in some way, right? How many, how many people here have experienced some kind of suffering, some kind of affliction as a Christian? Anything? Anybody? Any kind of suffering, any affliction, tribulation? This is, this is meant to be a personal message to encourage you. It's what Paul shared with the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. He says, you also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. John's not writing here to this church, to the churches, to the seven churches, to the church today, as somebody who is abstract. He's writing because he can relate, and he's writing to encourage and care. Maybe you're experiencing suffering right now. Maybe it's some kind of physical suffering. Maybe you're experiencing afflictions and trials because of your faith. Maybe you're, you're getting rejected by family members. Maybe you're being rejected by your boss or your coworkers treat you differently or people on your campus and your schools mock you because you're a Christian for what you believe. They make fun of you. You're experiencing to some degree tribulations. And, and this message is from Jesus that's meant to encourage you and saying, hey, take heart. In the midst of tribulation. But not only is he a partner, he says, in, the, in the tribulation, he's a partner in two other things. He's a partner in the kingdom as well. And it, he's already told us how we have been made a part of the kingdom. So that's good news. In the middle of tribulation, it's good to know that we're part of this kingdom that's everlasting, right? Isn't that good to know that no matter what it looks like here, we've been made a part of this everlasting kingdom. And so John is identifying and personally sharing, hey, in the midst of tribulation, I'm a partner, I'm a sharer in your tribulation, but I'm also a sharer in the kingdom. And not only that, I'm also a sharer in this patient endurance. Now that part doesn't sound so great to me. 
I don't like patiently enduring. I have a problem with patient endurance. You know, I don't like waiting in line very long. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't like standing in the DMV. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have much patient endurance. You have to endure because it's the only way to get your, your license. But, but do I do it patiently? Probably not. Probably like, okay, why are they calling six other people before me? Because my number's before theirs. And I don't understand the whole weird system with the different letters and numbers and freaks me out. And, but John's saying, I'm, I'm a partner. I get it in this tribulation, in the kingdom. Don't forget that. And then and in the middle of this tribulation, we have a kingdom that we're a part of and we can patiently endure. And by the way, I'm your partner in this patient endurance. John knows that Jesus has already established his kingdom. The stone that the builders rejected. Israelites' religious elite rejected Jesus has now become the chief cornerstone. And this stone now has come and smashed the world's kingdoms. And he has established his kingdom. And he's ruling and he's reigning right now. John's aware of these things. And so it's loaded with all of those ideas that we've already seen in the first chapter of Revelation. And and he is confident, though, that he will patiently endure. Why? Because he's a part of God's kingdom. Because he has a king. Do you know that in the middle of tribulation, persecution, trial, suffering, in your need to patiently endure, you have a king and a kingdom. And this message is written to you from your king, letting you know you're a part of his kingdom, and he sees you. John's no stranger to tribulation. He experienced some himself. He's on this island called Patmos. I have a I think I have a map for you up there somewhere, if you can see this or not. But Patmos is that little dot down there. Um, it's off the coast, and that number one there is Ephesus. And John's saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm a prisoner here on this island called Patmos. They had a, a Roman penal colony was there on the Isle of Patmos. And um, the Romans would, if they had somebody who was famous or influential, and they didn't want to kill them because they'd actually experienced backlash for doing that, and what they would do is they would take that influential or famous person who was stirring things up and they just kind of get them out of the picture. And so the people wouldn't riot because they weren't being killed. It didn't seem unfair, but yet they would get, get them out of the place where they're causing trouble. And, and John apparently had been causing trouble probably in that whole area where he just was in Ephesus. And so they sent him off to an island called Patmos. He is there, he tells us, because he too is... is, is is suffering because he's preached the word of God and he's shared the testimony of Jesus. What is that? That's the gospel, the good news. He's, he's given testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ and he's been banished to the island and so now he's writing this letter, this, this very personal message and he's writing it to these real churches, churches who probably were familiar with him and he sends us and you wonder, okay, why are these seven churches? Well, these, these seven churches were very influential but also a letter going from Patmos. The, 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 the messenger probably would go to Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamos, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's, it's the road that they would take. And so it's a, a very personal, practical message written to real people in real churches. God, I, I love too that if I think about John, you know, I don't know exactly when this letter is written. You can go ahead and, and get rid of the map. I don't know exactly when the letter was written, but somewhere between 60-something A.D. and probably 80-something A.D. in that range. And so no matter when, John was getting up there. And I, and I love thinking about this, this old guy, and it's just encouraging to me because the older I get, the more I need this kind of encouragement. <laughs> John's, John's not done. This is actually probably his his most glorious piece, his most glorious work, and has done in his old age, and I love that. 
Um, he, he is, he's on this island, and he's in his old age, and God's using him mightily as an encouragement to all the churches for all the ages. And it's not the main idea of the passage here by any means, but I was thinking about that, and it just struck me that the folks in our church who are getting up there, who are getting on an age, and, and if you are one of those people, you know who you are, and if you don't think you're one of those people, then great, that's good. I'm not going to point you out, but... Now, you know, when, when gray hair starts to creep in and you start to get older, you, you start to think, maybe I can't be used as much and maybe I'm not as useful. And you think that, you know, your health starts to decline, your abilities, maybe your stamina starts to go. And John experienced all those things and yet God used him mightily. I was really encouraged by that one encouraging you in the church. Don't, don't, don't feel like God's written you off, like God can't use you somehow because of your location or where you're at or how old you are got a godly friend named Dave. He's, he's been coaching me for a while now, and, and he's close to 80 years old, and um, he has been a believer, I, I think, for about 60 years. And, and I love that he's still full of joy of the Lord. He's going strong. He's supporting churches. He's kindly, faithfully caring for pastors behind the scenes, encouraging him. God's not done with him yet. I'm like, man, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like John. Now, we, we, can't, we can't just get revelations, but, but we can be faithfully serving and positioning ourselves, and that's what John was doing. He was, he was still serving the Lord, and I love how it says they found him. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John's this old guy, but he's not giving up. He's still faithfully serving the Lord on the Lord's day. He's in the Spirit. He's still seeking God, probably thinking about these churches, and God sends him a message. So don't stop, if you're older, by the way. Don't stop dreaming and praying and seeking God and don't stop being a part of the church and serving and sharing the wisdom of your lifetime of victories and defeats. You never know how God might use you. Well, John says he was faithfully in the spirit of the Lord's day, worshiping God like a normal Sunday, and something extraordinary happens. And this reads like a movie. I think that's why Revelation was written in a bit, because it was, it was written for people who, who may not have been big-time readers. You see those People on that day and those churches, they not probably a majority of them were not able to read. So this, this, this book was written to people so that it, it was vivid. And it's vivid imagery here. And let this vivid imagery strike you. So look, look down in verse 10. It says, he, he was in the Lord's day and he's praying and you know, he's just worshiping God, minding his own business. And you know, behind him he says, I heard the voice like a loud trumpet. It must have scared him crazy. You know, I like to, um, sometimes when Julie is in the kitchen late at night and all the kids are in bed, I like to kind of sneak out, come up behind her and say, hey! And she goes, oh my gosh! It scares her, you know, and um, it's, it's a huge shock. John is just, he's really reverent, he's praying, he's in the Lord, and, and so he hears this voice like a trumpet. It must have scared him. You ever have that happen to you? You ever have somebody startle you like that? Maybe you don't like it. I hope my family does because they have to put up with it. Um, but we do that to each other too. So John's even more startled and he hears this loud voice behind him and he says, this loud voice, listen to what it says. Look down at verse 11. It says, write what you see. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, to Laodicea. This is a message that's personal and it's meant to be shared with people. And he said, John, I want you to write down what you see here. Real churches facing real issues. 
He's writing to these churches, and think about it, most of these churches probably have been founded somewhere after 49 AD or so when Paul went on his second missionary journey through that area. We know that Ephesus was probably founded around then by the Apostle Paul, and then he came back a few years later in, in 54 to 57 AD. He spent about three years. How would you like that, by the way, Apostle Paul spent three years in your church? Pretty cool, but you know what? It doesn't make a perfect church, and Ephesus and all these churches were not perfect, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. So now this is getting on in, in, in time. This is probably at least 15 years after the churches were founded. And by the way, that's kind of similar to our age, right, of church? This is at least 15 years after the church was founded, and these churches had problems. Shock, right? The church is founded by Paul and Barnabas that, that Paul personally was at and pastored for several years and wrote letters to. The letter to the Ephesians was written to that church probably 10 years earlier, somewhere around there. And, and yet these churches, they've, they've become settled and they have some temptations. And as most churches have become settled, have temptations, right? Settled churches have temptations generally to either compromise, to, to kind of become like the world around them, or to, to give in, or to, to kind of lose their saltiness, to lose their flavor, their edge, to forget what they're really all about. Or they have a temptation to, to turn away from the truth. Or to lose heart when they feel like they're the only ones suffering and struggling and they look at the world around them and it looks like it's hopeless. And so John's writing to churches like that. Jesus is writing a personal message to churches like that. And, and boy, I think that, that church is really, we can relate to that church as well for us, right? We face those challenges. If you're honest with yourself, you face the challenges to give in, to compromise, to, to lose heart, to grow faint, to become complacent. It's a very relevant messages for us, for the church today. It's a personal message to us. And John says, write what you see and put it in a book. Now, imagine that you got a letter from your loved one, whoever that might be, and they were in a far-off land, right? So imagine that for a moment, that you got a letter from a loved one, they were in a far-off country, and you knew they were going to come home, and they're going to bring you back to go live with them. You knew that it was going to happen one day soon. You knew that they're going, to, they're going to come home. They're going to bring you back to live with them in that far-off country. You might wonder in the meanwhile, how are they doing? What's going on? What, what's, what it might it be like to be with them? And imagine that you received that letter from your loved one, and it was actually encouraging because they said, you know, I, I actually, I'm doing better than you think here. I'm actually ruling and reigning in this country. And I'm going to let you know how things are. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you some perspective. That's how this letter is meant to fall on the church. How it's meant to hear, the church is meant to hear this letter. This is a letter written from King Jesus, our loved one. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And he's writing a personal message to us. And he's letting us know that, that our almighty king, our almighty Jesus, he is reigning among his church now. It's the second thing we need to see here is that our almighty Jesus, he's reigning among his church now. He's not just distant, though. In one sense, heaven's a far-off place because we can't imagine it. But in another sense, what we need to know is that he's not gone away in that sense. He is, he is reigning. He's among his church. He's not left us alone. He's ruling and reigning in his church through his Holy Spirit. So John turns around. I can imagine doing this. He hears this voice like a trumpet and it says this loud thing to write what you see. And so he's freaked out. So he turns around and he's undone. Now think about that. This is the apostle John who walked and talked with Jesus. He knew Jesus as a man. 
He saw Jesus as a man. He actually saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw his face glowing with the glory of the sun. And he fell down there. And he has a similar but even more so overwhelming experience here. Now why does, why does Jesus show himself like that? Because John and the church need to see that our Almighty is reigning. You need to see, personally need to see, that Jesus He's not just a mere man. Yes, he is a man. He identifies with us. He, he understands us in our weaknesses. He comes to us as a man. He, he understands us. But he's not a mere man. Don't become familiar with Jesus where he's just Jesus meek and mild and you think of him as your buddy. This is not buddy Jesus here. This is King Jesus who loves you, but he is reigning. He's reigning. Don't Don't fail to see he is our almighty King Jesus and he is reigning among his church now. And he has every right to reign among his church. He has every right to speak to his church and his reign and rule is meant to encourage the church as well. So John turns around and he doesn't see Jesus meek and mild. He sees Jesus big and wild. I mean, this isn't crazy. This is incredible. It's the same kind of language that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, this is what Daniel saw, I believe, some of the same kind of ideas of who Jesus is. He says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. John's now seeing the fulfillment of Daniel's vision 600 years later. And this description is similar to the description he gives in Daniel 10 as well. We're not going to go there. But it's just uncanny how many references there are from Revelation looking back and seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. That's how Jesus could, could open up the Bible when he, after he was resurrected to show them himself through all the prophets. But John sees this mighty King Jesus and he's undone. This Jesus is different. And he describes them with, with kind of poetic language. Now, when, when you, when you're not meant to actually picture that there's this sword coming out of his mouth. And, but these, this, this imagery that John was given, this picture that John was given was meant to communicate things. It would be pretty awkward if somebody's walking around and they have a sword coming out of their mouth. It's not, it's not, it's not what we're meant to see. But that it's, it's symbolic. It's meant to communicate things to us. All these features are meant to communicate features that are real about Jesus that it's hard to put into words. Imagine saying, the infinite creator of all. How do you put that into words? And so God gives him a picture and says, communicate this picture. This, this, this picture communicates the ideas of who I am. And this is he had a long robe with a golden sash, probably a sign of his priestly majesty. He's, his, that sash around his chest probably signified his highest rank and the fact that he's a conquering ruler. He's got this gold sash. He has conquered. He's overcome. And, and he, has, he has the highest rank of all. It says the hairs of his head were white like wool, white as snow. What does what that imagery communicate? It communicates wisdom, right? Now it communicates experience and wisdom. He's perfectly white. His hair is perfectly white like snow. He's perfectly wise. He's perfectly knowing. He's he's all-knowing, full of wisdom, full of honor. He's the ancient of days. He's the one who was. He's ultimately dignified. He knows all things. That's some of the ideas communicated behind that. His eyes like a flame of fire. 
They just burn right through you. They're piercing. You don't want to look at them because when he looks at you, you know that he sees everything. They burn. His eyes are like a flame of fire, piercing, discerning, seeing all, burning with intensity. It's kind of the idea you see here. It's just this beautiful, vivid imagery. There's this intense discerning in his gaze. It's burning like fire. It lays everyone bare. Everyone's exposed by his sight. This is almighty King Jesus. Who's among his church. Think about that. What does that communicate as you're thinking about Jesus? And you're thinking, he's the ruler who reigns. He's the one who knows all things. He sees me. He sees all. He sees all the people, both believers and unbelievers. He sees right through it all. He's not fooled. There's no falsehood, no deceit, no lies that he can't see right through. It's like saying that his gaze alone would, would set you aflame with conviction. And yet he loves us. Not only that, it says he's kind of fit for war as the imagery here is. His feet, and, and there's not even really a good word to translate that most translators say is like burnished bronze gleaming after being purified in fire. But it's, it's, it's not really a word that they used back then. It's, it's, it's a word meant to communicate this, this kind of strength, this might, this glowing strength and might. This signifying this medal of war, the fact that he don't treads out God's wrath with perfect justice. It's kind of the imagery you're meant to get. Don't overthink some of these things. You know, when you get to heaven, you're not going to see that Jesus literally has feet of bronze. Now, he's a man. He's got holes in his hands and his feet. But these communicate parts of his character and his attributes. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And he might be pointing back to the vision of God from Ezekiel 43, 2, where it describes God like that. And how God came with the sound of rushing waters. And um, I still remember many, many years ago, we got to take a trip up to Niagara Falls. Anybody been to Niagara Falls, by the, by the way? You've seen Niagara Falls? It's, and, and when you see Niagara Falls, you don't just see it, right? You hear it. And you hear it a long ways away. It's loud. Well, we had this little trip that we took. It was called Cave of the Winds Tour. You know, it's a, it's a scam to rip you off, but it's really kind of amazing anyway. You take this elevator down 175 feet to the base of Bridal Veil, the smallest falls of the falls. There you have American Falls, Bridal Veil Falls, Horseshoe Falls, and, and it's right beside Bridal Veil Falls. It's the smallest little fall at Niagara. And you take this elevator ride down, you ride, walk this platform out to about 20 feet away from me to the sign there from Bridal Veil Falls. As it's coming, this, this cascading torrent of water is crashing down on the rocks, and it's overwhelmingly loud. The sound of many waters. It's rushing. It's, it, it overwhelms your senses. You get, you, get a, you get a feeling for the power, the might, the wonder. And that's what he says, that his voice was like the roar of many waters. This intensity, this awe-inspiring, overwhelming of the senses with power and intensity. His voice, it commands your attention and his power overwhelms your senses. That's who King Jesus is. That's what we're meant to see. And then it says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, he, he's definitely almighty as he's holding seven stars. We're not, we're not meant to actually try to picture, okay, well, let, me, let me see, what does it look like? What does it look like for him to hold seven stars? No. It, it signifies kind of protection and favor. He's holding these stars in his hands. He's he has them in a favored place. He's holding them to keep them safe. And then it says, from his mouth. And we'll see later what, what, he, what he meant by that. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What does that mean? Does that, does that mean he literally has a sword in his mouth? 
Now we'll see later in Revelation 19, it speaks the same way of him. Revelation 19, 15, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is a sword that, that is, carries out justice. It says he rules in the rod of iron. He tread the winepress, the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. He's judging the word perfectly by his powerful word. Why? Because it talks about God's word being sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Piercing division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of, of the heart. And so Jesus, out of his mouth, his words discern. His words cut through it all. His words cut through all diffusion, confusion and doubt as they separate truth from fiction. They're clear. They're piercing. They're powerful. They bring justice. That's good to know if you're suffering in the church, right? It's good to have this vision of, of who Jesus is, that he's ruling and reigning, and we need to see him for who he is because that gives us confidence. So we have a king, and he is ruling. He's not Jesus meek and mild. He is, but he is far more. It says his face was shining like the strength of the sun. It was so bright, so pure, shining with the very glory of God. He is intense. His face, wherever he looks, he dispels darkness. His light shines. What John's communicating is a picture that that shows that no one would doubt his power. You ever doubt Jesus' power? Read this description of him again in Revelation. You won't doubt his power. You ever doubt his ability to help you in trials and tribulation? You ever doubt his ability to cut through the confusion and, and muck out there to make things clear? Look at Jesus now. He, he's able to, to cut through it all. He's able to see clearly. He's able to shine his light on the darkness. He's pure. And you see that you, you see his purity, his kingly rule, his right, his power to reign in complete purity. And he has, he has the ability to carry out justice, to speak into every situation. Why? Because he knows all things. He is all wise. He is all knowing, all powerful. But boy, this imagery is much more powerful than just saying those words, isn't it? It's a frightening image that no one can stand before without feeling like we're going to die. If, if you turned around, you, you heard that sound, like rushing waters and that trumpet, and you turned around and you saw the saw this King Jesus, you wouldn't be like, oh, hey, Jesus, glad you're here. <laughs> you fall down. You'd hide your face. You couldn't stand it. It'd be too bright. All your thoughts intense your heart, you'd know that he just saw right through you. He sees it all. And yet, as John does that, he says, I, I saw him and I fell down on his feet. You know, John knew Jesus personally. He was one of Jesus' three best friends. But he doesn't respond like that. Like, hey, high five, Jesus. Now he sees Jesus for who he really is and all his kingly might and rule and he falls down dead at his feet, like dead at his feet. He doesn't move. He's so frightened. He's just there. And yet, almighty King Jesus personally speaks a timely message to him and to the church. That's what he does. Our almighty Jesus, he speaks a timely message, timely words to his church. These are timely words for you and I as well. You think that, you know what, we, we can be undone as we see Jesus for who he really is. And I encourage you to begin to think of Jesus in all of these magnificent terms. He is far exalted in all these ways. But yet, he comes to you just like he came to John. He says, don't fear. How in the world are we not supposed to fear? Well, John's already told us he loves us. He's died for us. He set us free from our sins. That's how we cannot fear. How else can we not fear? Well, we cannot fear the situations going on around us in our world today. What might happen to us? Because why? Because he is King Jesus. So when he says don't fear, it applies 
all across the board to every situation. It applies practically to your life too, doesn't it? And so he speaks a timely word to his church, and that's what we see in these last few verses here. And he says, fear not. And I love this. He says, I'm the first and I'm the last. (laughs) There is no one, no one who's bigger than me. There's no one who has the first word or the last word. I do. I have the first word. I have the last word. And by the way, I'm not dead. I'm living. I'm the living one. The one from whom all life comes. I'm the living one. I define life. That's what Jesus is saying to John. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Don't believe the myths that Jesus is not active, that he's not alive. He says, I'm alive forevermore. I died. I died to set you free from your sins. And I'm alive forevermore. And get this, I have the keys to death in Hades. He's... He controls everything. Now, think about keys, right? You know, um, when my grandmother got to a certain age, somewhere around 90, um, we, we, we took her keys from her. You know, I feel bad saying that. We took her keys from her. Why? Well, because we cared about her. Because she, she was no longer able to um, drive as well as she thought she could. She was very quick and mentally, but she was not as quick physically. <laughs> Um, and so we, we, we took her keys because we loved her. Finally, she got it. But keys, they, they, they're a big deal if you're older because it's, it, it, it feels like it's taking away your independence, right? It's taking away your authority. It's taking away your abilities. And Jesus is saying, I've done that to the devil. I've done that to death and to hell. I've taken the keys. I have them. I've got the keys. I have the authority. I'm ruling. I'm reigning. So devil, the devil's not in charge and the world's not in charge over your time and the world's not in charge of your death and no one else is in charge of your death. No one else is in charge of your final destiny. It's me. And that's meant to give the church hope and peace and comfort and encouragement. Jesus has the keys. He has the authority. No one else controls you. No one else is over your life and death. No one else is over your final destiny. Jesus is, and if you place your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, and you believe that he has died for your sins, then here's the good news. He's got the keys. And as he's alive forevermore, so shall you be alive forevermore. He's got the keys. He has all authority over life and death, over is, what is, and what will be. And so then he looks at John and he says, so because of all those things, because of all of who I am, write these things down. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you've seen. And that applies to the whole book of Revelation. Write all the things, John, that you're going to see. All the things that you've seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. Everything you've seen, the things that currently are, the things that will take place, both those things, write all these things down because of who I am. Because this is a personal message meant to encourage the church. And he has all authority to do this. Now, for many of us, we probably, as we read the book of Revelation, we probably are tempted to want to find out what is this all about, right? I don't know if you ever approached Revelation that way. Have you taken that letter from God to us and you've opened it up and you thought, all right, let me get my Dakota ring out. You know, open your box of cereal, get that little magic Dakota ring. That's not how we're supposed to to take this. And and so when we hear the words, those things that are, those things that will be, we're like, oh, let's let's forget. No, he's... He's telling us about the truth, the reality of who he is in light of everything that's going to take place, who he is and what's really going on. It's meant to give us confidence and security. It's not meant for us to try to figure out 
exactly when the after this was. I think it misses the point. Why do I think it misses the point? Because Jesus told his disciples that in Acts, right? In Acts 1, 6, they, the disciples, they come to him and he's already resurrected. And they're like, cool, you really are the king. You really have conquered death. You really do reign. Now, God, are you going to tell us when these things are going to take place? Are you, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now are you going to make the kingdom full and, and be here? When are you now? When, are, you, are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? And listen to what Jesus said to them. And it's applicable to us today as we read Revelation. He says, in Acts 1, 7, 8, he says that, said to them, it's not for you. It's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. So we know that's not the point of Revelation. Not the point of Revelation? Jesus tells us it's not for the disciples to know the time or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's the good news. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He basically said, look, it's not for you to figure out. You need to know that he has it all figured out. You need to know that he is reigning, he is ruling, he's the king, he's given us a message, and he wants us to live in response to him now. And that's what this message to the churches is for. So we can live in response to who he is now and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth despite what happens now and all that is to come. We need to see the reality of what's to come. But you know what the disciples did? They just stood there. So Jesus, after he says that, Jesus then goes and he starts like lifting up into heaven. That'd be pretty wild to see, by the way. So Jesus answers their questions. The last thing he says to them, the final thing Jesus says is, hey, you're missing the point, guys. Yes, I'm establishing my kingdom, but I'm not, I don't want you to try to wonder about when's it all going to happen. I want you to be my witnesses and see that I am the king and it is my kingdom and I will return. And then, and then they're just standing there looking up in heaven. Like, all right, what next? You know? And then this, the angels kind of are standing there watching him like, really? Says so these two guys standing beside him. The angels are like, you don't see us over here. He's gone. There's people are like, oh, where are you? And this, the angels are standing beside him and the angels give this little corrective and in, in, in Acts 1, 10, it says, and when they're gazing up into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You need to know that. Figure out the day and the time. He's going to come back. So get get to work. Get busy. Live in light of that fact that he's going to come back. That's in essence what John's telling us here. What Jesus is telling us. If Jesus wanted us to figure out absolutely everything in this revelation or disclosing this unveiling, he would have made that clear. What he has made clear is who he is, that he is triumphant, he's ruling and reigning, and he's going to come back. It's a practical book that reveals Jesus we can hear and keep his words of the prophecy. It's meant to help us see behind the scenes what's really going on, what's going to transpire as well. It's, 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 an, it's intentionally he's not concerned with laying out exact timing of things so that we will know exactly when things happen or God would have made that clear. He's concerned about knowing that he is really in control, that he's ruling, that we need to see Jesus for who he is. We need to see that Jesus has given to us this personal message of who he is, of his might, his power, his ability. And this message is meant to actually have us respond. If you saw this image that John saw of Jesus, you would think, I better take his word seriously. Right? 
least I hope you think that. And he has the right to talk to me however he wants. He has the right, and he sees everything. And so I need to respond to this word and hear it and keep it. That's meant to be the effect on the listeners then and the listeners now. This is King Jesus in all of his glory and attributes. He has a message for us that's meant to be kept. We're meant to focus on who he is. We're meant to have that affect our daily life and how we live in the sufferings, trials, tribulations, difficulties of life. And then verse 20, listen, that must have been great comfort to the churches that received that letter, and I think it's meant to be great comfort for us as well. Look in verse 20, if you will, in your Bibles. Don't worry, we're we're almost there. Jesus holds the angels of the seven churches. This is what he tells us. They might have been literal angels, we don't know. They might have been archangels, they might have been guardian angels, or maybe these angels, because the word angel means messenger, they could have been the messengers of the church, or pastors of the church, but it's not really, doesn't matter what he's saying is, these are representative of the spirits of the church. And he's holding the messengers of the church. He's holding the church. He's holding those who represent the church in his hand. And he's among the seven lampstands. He's not left the church. He is working in and among, and he's in the midst of his church. He is in the midst of these seven lampstands that are the church. This powerful, sovereign king, is he's among the suffering, the weak, the tempted of the church. And he's among us. Maybe you're suffering today. Maybe you're weak. Maybe you're tempted. Maybe you're complacent, like the readers to those, of those, I mean, the, the people in those seven churches were. They were tempted in all those ways. Maybe that's you. This letter, is, it's written so that you would not be complacent, so you would not lose heart, so you would not give up, so you would not give in, so that you be comforted, so you remember who he really is. He's not distant. He's among you. And stop and, and listen to the overall message that one might get. I just want you to, to stop Stop thinking and try to figure all these little things out and picturing these things in your head, but listen to the overall message and one might get more clearly from Revelation 20 if you didn't get wrapped up trying to figure out the details. And that's how we're meant to see pictures in, in Revelation. Think, think about this for a second. Jesus, he's holy. What are some of the things he communicate? He's holy, he's exalted. He reigns mightily. He wears this royal sash of victory. He's a ruler. He reigns over all. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is all wise. No one fools him. He knows the truth. He sees right through all things and all people. Now think about all these things I'm saying. How do they apply to you and your situation? How is that encouraging to you? No one can withstand his gaze. And he speaks words, carry force. Nothing withstands his judgments. His judgments are pure and mighty. They cut right through the fog and his word pierces the heart and soul of mankind. He brings conviction. How does that apply to your situation? He's not dead. He's not distant. He's living. He's reigning. How does that apply? He's mighty, he's holy, he's righteous, he's true, he's powerful, he carries out justice, he's alive forevermore, he has power and authority over life and death, everything in between, he's among the church. What kind of effect might that have on you if you really saw those things in your daily life, in your temptation to be complacent, in your temptation to give in, to assimilate, in your temptation to give up? How might that encourage you or sober you up if somebody's playing church and acting like nobody really sees what they're doing? This is King Jesus. He's looking at you. His eyes are burning like fire. How might I encourage you if you're feeling like giving up, you see his golden sash. Oh, he's overcome. He's not left me. He's not alone. He's among the churches. What effect might I have when somebody's just taking it easy and blending in? Oh, the time is short. He's coming back. I can't play around. I don't want to play church anymore. 
Jesus has something to say. He's not messing around. He's not playing games. He's not tame. He's got a message, so listen up. And so you would have heard that. As you're, as you're hearing this letter read, you would have heard, oh, he's, he's got something to say to me. I better listen. And it applies in all those categories. We know the truth about Jesus. The whole Trinity is for us. He's concerned that we might keep and hear this prophecy. You know, this message this morning, we can, we can keep it and we can hear it and keep it. We can hear the truths of who Jesus is and his victory and what he's about and we can keep that practically in our lives. If you're complacent, if you're assimilating, if you're wanting to give up. The whole Trinity's for us and the whole Trinity loves us and wants to give us grace and peace. He's reigning over us. He's our faithful witness who died that we might live forever in him. He's made his kingdoms and priests and we might reign and minister for him and to him. We have the greatest purpose to live for. So let's listen and hear him. He's speaking to us for our good. Let's be careful to respond to him as he comes and he speaks his words of comfort knowing he's with us and he holds us. Amen? Let's pray. Have the band go ahead and come up and we'll close. Jesus, I pray that we would behold you, that we would not be too familiar with you, but we would see you in your might and your majesty and your splendor, your glory, your wisdom, your strength, your discernment, all these attributes and qualities you've shown us. Lord, I pray for those who are complacent that they'd be stirred that Jesus doesn't play around. We're not meant to play church. Issues of life and death and eternal reality are are to play. God, I pray for those who are tempted to assimilate that they would experience the convicting gaze of King Jesus, but they'd also experience the love that we have in you, the forgiveness we have in you, that you died for our sins. You want to burn away all impurities, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who've been mired down in sins that we would see that you have conquered our sins. You've defeated the grave and, he- and, and death and hell. And, and Lord, you are mighty and powerful to rescue us from our sins and to burn away all impurities in our lives. God, I pray for those who don't know you that they might put their faith and trust and hope in you, Lord, and repent and believe. God, I pray for those who are tempted to give up. pray that they would see that you are ruling and reigning and you are among them. You are for them and you are mighty and strong and you will enable them to endure. There's nothing too hard for you. God, I pray we all might see you, we might hear these words and we might keep them in our hearts and respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.